All right, we are back. The Week magazine often figures into this program because it has so many uh, uh, brilliant little pieces succinctly written, which certainly lends itself uh, to our purposes. And one essay in their section titled The Last Word caught my eye. I think it's worth talking about a bit. It's uh, written by Alan DeBottom, who's also written a book titled The News, A User's Manual. The week titled the piece, The Future of News, with a subheadline, news sources can't just give us the facts, they must tell us what those facts mean. Go to Mr. DeBottom, news organizations are coy about admitting that what they present us with each day are minuscule extracts of narratives whose true shape and logic can generally only emerge from a perspective of months or even years, and that it would hence often be wiser to hear the story in chapters rather than in snatched sentences. Of course, I would pause right here to note that he's evidently referring to the electronic news media, and perhaps in particular, the TV news networks. Because you certainly can get uh, more uh, comprehensive analysis in magazines and in written pieces. But DeBottom notes, referring to, quote, news organizations, unquote, that they are institutionally committed to implying that it is inevitably better to have a shaky and partial grasp of a subject this minute than to wait for a more secure and comprehensive understanding somewhere down the line. He notes, we need news organizations to help our curiosity by signaling how their stories fit into the larger themes on which a sincere capacity for interest depends. To grow interested in any piece of information, we need somewhere to put it, which means some way of connecting it to an issue we already know how to care about. A section of the human brain might be pictured as a library in which information is shelved under certain fundamental categories. It is for news organizations to take on some of this librarian's work. He goes on to note that unfortunately for our level of engagement, there's a prejudice at large within many news organizations that the most prestigious aspect of journalism is the dispassionate and neutral presentation of, quote, facts, unquote. The problem with facts, notes to bottom, is that there are nowadays no shortage of sound examples. The issue is not that we need more of them, but that we don't know what to do with the ones we have. He says in the piece, central to modern politics is the majestic and beautiful idea that every citizen is, in a small but highly significant way, the ruler of his or her own nation. The news has a central role to play in the fulfillment of this promise. Near the end, he says it would be easy to suppose that the real enemy of democratic politics must be the active censorship of news, and therefore that the freedom to say or publish anything would be the natural ally of civilization. But the modern world, the bottom goes on to say, is teaching us that there are dynamics far more insidious and cynical than censorship in draining people of political will. These involve confusing, boring, and distracting the majority away from politics by presenting events in such a disorganized, fractured, and intermittent way that a majority of the audience is unable to hold on to the thread of the most important issues for any length of time. A contemporary dictator, he said, would not need to do anything so obviously sinister as banning the news. He or she would only have to see to it the news organizations broadcast a flow of random-sounding bulletins in great numbers but with little explanation of context within an agenda that kept changing, without giving any sense of the ongoing relevance of an issue that had seemed pressing only a short while before. This would be quite enough to undermine most people's capacity to grasp political reality. We recommend that you uh, go online and read the whole piece. 
we think the bottom uh, has some good points to make, and this amplifies some comments we uh, we got out of Daniel Shore eight years ago, and we spoke with him about his career in journalism. See if Mr. Merlin can't find uh, the relevant uh, clip here. People get all kinds of information from all kinds of sources. They need interpretive journalists to tell them what it means. And what's happened is that that now you do get saturated with information, thanks partly uh, to the Internet. And it's not very difficult to get information anymore, except those things which are highly classified, secret, and that kind of stuff. But on the whole, I think people need interpretation more than they need another amount of facts. Of course, the lesson for all of us is that we do have to seek the context that will provide some better understanding of uh, those news items which are thrown about by our corporate media. All right, let's do a few science stories. Starting with a very puzzling story that uh, comes in an interface between the periodic table of the elements and athletic enhancement. And if you remember your periodic table of the elements, dear listener, and we certainly hope you do, being that we had a discussion about it with author Sam Keen a couple years back uh, regarding his national bestseller, The Disappearing Spoon, and other true tales of madness, love, and the history of the world from the periodic table of the elements. If you missed that discussion, we refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com. Sam Keen wrote a pretty good book, but I think even he would be shocked by the following story, which is that xenon, the noble gas, which sits on the right side of the periodic table, representing elements that are so satisfied with their arrangement of electrons, they just don't, they just don't bother to interact with any other elements. Well, I would have thought the noble gases would be the last place on Earth you're going to find anything that could uh, enhance athletic performance. But apparently, xenon, the gas which sits below krypton and above the radioactive radon on the periodic table, does have some unexpected biological effects. In some countries, notably Russia, it's used as an anesthetic. Apparently, xenon will dissolve in blood and can cross the blood-brain barrier, making it uh, an anesthetic. Who would have figured it? It somehow also manages to protect body tissues from the effects of low temperatures, lack of oxygen, and even physical trauma. It is known to increase the levels of erythropoietin in the body, EPO, the hormone that encourages the formation of red blood cells, and the subject of a great deal of controversy involving Lance Armstrong and others who use it to uh, boost their uh, red blood cell content and and thereby increase their athletic performance. Evidently, these effects of xenon are causing it to be investigated more extensively as a treatment for babies whose brains have accidentally been starved of oxygen during birth and perhaps of adults who've had heart attacks. Evidently, xenon activates a protein called HIF1-alpha, which acts as a switch to turn on production of a variety of other proteins, one of which is EPO. Now, artificially raising levels of EPO by injecting synthetic versions of the hormone or by taking a so-called HIF stabilizers is illegal under the rules of the World Anti-Doping Agency. But other methods of boosting the hormone, like xenon, apparently are permissible. And that fact apparently did not go unnoticed by Russian sports authorities. The use of xenon by athletes has the government's blessing. A document produced in 2010 by the State Research Institute of the Ministry of Defense sets out guidelines for the administration of the gas to athletes. It advises using it before competitions to correct listlessness 
and sleep disruption, and afterwards to improve physical recovery. The recommended dose is a 50-50 mixture of xenon and oxygen inhaled for a few minutes, ideally before going to bed. I gotta say, this is a damn weird story. There seems to be good evidence that this gas has been used in past Olympics. The website of Adam Medical Center, a Russian medical xenon producer, cites national honors the company received for its efforts in preparing athletes for the 2004 Summer Olympics and the 2006 Winter Games. And if any of you out there know anything about the effects of xenon to improve athletic performance, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. Here's a science item from The Economist, which uh, I'm just going to read. Note of the magazine, it's unfair but true that beautiful people are more successful than ugly ones. Data indicates that this rule applies both in business and politics. And biological theory suggests the underlying reason is that beauty is an indicator of good genes and good health. How that reason translates into success, though, is more questionable. It could be that the pretty and handsome get a helping hand from their colleagues and bosses. And in the case of politicians, voters, which is denied to the plain and the unseemly. Or it could be that beautiful people's underlying qualities mean they really are better, on average, at doing things. So in order to disentangle this explanation, uh, researchers turn to a field uh, that is close to a true meritocracy, professional sports. The magazine notes that although favoritism here might put you on the team, it will never land you on the winner's podium. So apparently Eric Postma at the University of Zurich has taken a look at long-distance cyclers. And his results, just published in Biology Letters, suggest that good looks really do reflect underlying fitness in both the athletic and the biological senses. Dr. Postma recruited 816 volunteers, 72% women, 28% men, as judges in a beauty competition. He also assembled a collection of 80 mugshots of participants in the 2012 Tour de France. He showed the pictures and asked volunteers to rate the writer in terms of how attractive they were. It was noted that both sexes seemed to agree on what was good-looking and what was not. When they were done, they seemed to have found a correlation between attractiveness and performance. They added that attractiveness turned out to have no link with likability. In other words, people that were striking a more uh, friendly pose in the pictures didn't seem to correlate with winners, nor were those rated as more masculine. Only attractiveness showed the correlation. The piece notes that athletic training, of course, does itself increase physical attractiveness, But given that everyone competing in the Tour de France is training to the limit, that variable seems irrelevant. And this is one study that certainly does warrant some follow-up on to see if they can reproduce these results. All right, Mr. Milne, this next item does uh, require, I think, a a certain musical accompaniment. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain Too much love drives a man insane You broke my will, but what a thrill Yes, indeed. Goodness gracious, a great ball of lightning seen in China could help solve the mystery of how these glowing orbs form. Anecdotes about ball lightning abound, but the phenomenon has been hard to study as their appearance is unpredictable, and when they do materialize, they last for mere seconds. Reportedly in 2012, some researchers at the Northwestern Normal University in Langzhou, China, were observing a thunderstorm. They were using cameras and spectrographs, and by chance, they recorded a lightning strike 
that sent up a 5-meter-wide glowing ball, which vanished after 1.6 seconds. Their analysis showed the key elements in the ball were silicon, iron, and calcium, which supports a theory that lightning strikes vaporize silicon oxide in dirt. If there's carbon in the soil, it will seal the silicon's oxygen, creating silicon vapor. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of whether this is going to explain ball lightning, but research should certainly continue. And rather surprisingly, according to Discover Magazine, another uh, area that requires further research would be the use of nicotine to help people. To quote from the article, The Nicotine Fix by Don Hurley, Every drug of addiction must have its day. Morphine remains one of the most potent painkillers ever discovered. Cocaine's chemical cousin lidocaine is still used by physicians and dentists as an effective local anesthetic. Even demon alcohol, when taken in moderation, cuts the risks of heart attacks, osteoporosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and a hodgepodge of other ailments. Now comes nicotine, perhaps the most unlikely wonder drug ever to be reviled. Notes the article, if dozens of human and animal studies published over the past six years are borne out by large clinical trials, nicotine, freed at last of its noxious host, tobacco, and delivered instead by chewing gum or transdermal patch, may prove to be weirdly improbably effective for relieving or preventing a variety of neurologic disorders, including Parkinson's disease, mild cognitive impairment, Tourette's, and schizophrenia. The article notes with great irony that uh, the one purpose for which nicotine has proven futile is the same one for which it's approved for use by our FDA, <laughs> which is uh, smoking cessation. Two years ago, a six-year follow-up study of nearly 800 adults who had recently quit smoking found that those who had used nicotine replacement therapy in the form of patch, gum, inhaler, or nasal spray had the same long-term relapse rate as those who did not use the products. Heavy smokers who tried to quit without the benefit of counseling were actually twice as likely to relapse if they used a nicotine replacement product. Now, according to the piece, the first hint of nicotine's curious benefits came from a study published back in 1966 by Harold Kahn, an epidemiologist at the NIH. Using insurance data on almost 300,000 veterans who have served in the U.S. military between 1917 and 1940, Kahn found the kinds of associations between smoking and mortality that had already become well-known. At any given age, cigarette smokers were 11 times as likely to have died of lung cancer as non-smokers and 12 times as likely to have died of emphysema. And, of course, there were cancers of the mouth, pharynx, esophagus, larynx, etc., etc., but amid the lineup of usual suspects, one oddball jumped out. Deaths due to Parkinson's disease occurred at least three times as often in non-smokers as smokers. Following up on this, researchers expected the finding to be just a statistical aberration in Kahn's data, but instead, they confirmed it. So how could it be that tobacco that ravages the heart, the lungs, the teeth, the skin, and just about everything else uh, might be good for the nervous system? Notes the piece back in 1979. UCLA neurobiologist Marie-Francois Chazoulet showed that nicotine increases levels of dopamine, a neurotransmitter essential for boosting attention and reward-seeking behavior, and, of course, the risk of addiction, from gambling to drugs. Dopamine also helps control movement. And the research showed that even small amounts of nicotine stimulates the release of dopamine from certain parts of the brain, which puts the brakes on movement that otherwise might go uncontrolled. That effect suggests why nicotine might help cure Parkinson's disease. 
Now, although its ultimate cause still remains unexplained, neuroscientists have long known that Parkinson's symptoms worsen when dopamine-producing neurons in the corpus striatum die out. Since the 1960s, the gold standard treatment for the disease has been the drug levodopa, also known as L-dopa. It's a dopamine precursor that can cross the blood-brain barrier. But it's not a perfect drug. L-dopa treatments eventually induce dyskinesia, quick involuntary movements of the hands and sometimes of the head and trunk. And recent research is showing that uh, by driving dopamine, nicotine appears to ease the tremors and tics caused by Parkinson's and even the movement disorders that are induced by the major Parkinson's drugs. This is some good news. It may shed some light on a very curious aspect of uh, the treatment of Parkinson's. Parkinson's patients lose some of their dopamine. It's a neurotransmitter that regulates not only movement, but also addictive behaviors. According to the piece, it's long been observed that people who develop Parkinson's tend to be more low-key and risk-adverse than average. It's as if their innate dopamine levels have always been on the low side. And curiously, when they take L-dopa, some have been known to swing to the other side of rewards of the reward-seeking spectrum, developing gambling or sexual addictions. So, a study's been started. Uh, is it possible that over-the-counter nicotine gum or patches can halt the progression of Parkinson's? We certainly hope so. And this correspondent is especially intrigued by the possibility that nicotine, pure nicotine, as used in e-cigarettes, may turn out to be quite a different beast than traditional tobacco. I was certainly taught in medical school that uh, nicotine was not the culprit when it came to all the bad health effects of tobacco. It was the other stuff uh, in the leaf. Something that's especially curious about all of this is that when they used nicotine to try and treat these patients in these various studies, they found that they were not addicted as smokers are. Noted the piece, tobacco may well be as addictive as heroin. I, I would say it's actually more addictive than heroin, and I think most of my medical colleagues would agree with me. But the piece notes that uh, getting mice or other animals hooked on nicotine alone is proving to be dauntingly difficult. Quoting a 2007 paper in the journal Neuropharmacology, quote, tobacco use has one of the highest rates of addiction of any abused drug, unquote. But paradoxically, it's almost impossible to get laboratory animals hooked on pure nicotine, although it has a mildly pleasant effect. Apparently, it's the other stuff in combination with the nicotine that makes it so addicting. Back in 2005, researchers at, uh, at UC Irvine found that animals self-administered a combination of nicotine and acetaldehyde significantly more often than either chemical alone. And in 2009, a French team found that combining nicotine with a cocktail of five other chemicals found in tobacco, an abacine, nor nicotine, anatabine, cotinine, and mycemine significantly increased RAC's hyperactivity and self-administration of the mix compared with nicotine alone. Interesting stuff. All right, I want to talk more about some other drugs here, uh, but we're, we're just short on time for today's program, so I think I'll lump that discussion along with the death of Philip Seymour Hoffman. Of course, those two items are related, being that Mr. Hoffman did die from a heroin overdose. We'll um, take that up on next week's show. There is one little comment I'd want to make about uh, drugs and Mexico, which is to note, first off, that, that my trip to Mazatlan last week had absolutely nothing to do with the capture of Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Although we do want to cite a briefing paper from the Week magazine from dating to a couple weeks before Guzman's arrest, noting that as head of the Sinaloa 
cartel. El Chapo was a practical businessman who preferred bribe over bullets. He invests millions in corrupting police and government officials in Mexico rather than intimidating them with violence. Malcolm Beeth, author of a book on Guzman titled The Last Narco, said there was a level-headedness about Sinaloa's leadership that the other groups lacked. And uh, in 2010, National Public Radio Investigation of Mexican Arrest Records noted that the Sinaloa gang had suffered notably fewer arrests than other cartels. U.S. court documents also show the top Sinaloa officials met regularly with DEA agents between 2006 and 2012 to feed them intelligence about rival cartels, helping law enforcement crush their competitors. Of course, both U.S. and Mexican officials denied showing any favoritism towards Sinaloa. About all I know about Mexico and drugs is that when you go down to Mazatlan or back into Mexico, good luck finding a smoke-free area. This correspondent more than once threw up his hands and walked out of various establishments where he was being smoked out. So at any rate, when I see the debate going on here in America about further restricting smoking in outdoor patios and such, I just say, go for it. I think it's outrageous that we allow drug addicts to pollute our environment with poisons. Of course, that opinion, like all those heard in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All right, let's close with this science item. Letter to the editor of New Scientist magazine. Living by the south coast of England, sea mists are a common weather phenomenon. As the cold mist rolls off the sea and inland, it is accompanied by a notably intense marine seashore smell. How does this smell get into the mist? The conditions are almost always calm, so there are no waves to form spray droplets. Replied John Richfield, that smell is neither ozone nor seawater. It is largely a chemical compound called dimethyl sulfide, DMS, plus related compounds, together with products of their chemical reactions with oxygen in the air. Plankton and seaweed and their like produce DMS and similar compounds in huge amounts. As a rule, sea breezes disperse it quickly, but both DMS and its derivatives are fairly heavy gases, and in still air, they tend to hang over their sources. There, they accumulate and mature into intensely aromatic compounds through molecular or atmospheric chemical reactions. They then bind largely to humid droplets, such as those found in mists. When a gentle breeze moves them inland, everyone in their path gets their full aromatic benefit. All right, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. The smell, the smell. 